This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. I appreciate you tuning in to Trumpet Hour today. I'm Joel Hilliker. We're all feeling the effects of inflation. It's starting to have effects, though, beyond just boosting our grocery bills. It threatens to have serious political, even geopolitical effects. Our first segment today is a report from Trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic about the situation in Europe, especially Germany. It's been 100 years since the hyperinflation crisis in Germany after World War I. It looks inevitable that this winter will bring recession and even tougher economic times are projected. How will Germans respond? What lessons can we take from their history? This past summer in the U.S. saw historic drought and extreme heat at the same time as terrible flooding and storms. In Europe, record flooding last year has turned into record drought this year. Such extremes always have people looking for answers as to why. We'll hear a report from Trumpet writer Josue Michels about a dimension to this question that most people are overlooking. In our third segment, we'll talk about habits. Are bad habits holding you back? How do you change bad habits into good habits and healthy habits? What you repeatedly do each day ultimately forms the person you are. Holistic nutritionist and personal trainer Jorg Mardian will talk with us about how you can improve your health and your life by changing your habits. And finally, if you've had a failure recently, stick around for the end of the program where I'll give you a few words about how to bounce back. Let's start by looking at how inflation is transforming Europe's economy in this report from Mihailo Zekic. Inflation has been in the news around the world for months now, as many major countries struggle to cope with high inflation rates. Major economies like the United States, Mexico, Brazil, the Eurozone, and the United Kingdom are all at rates of inflation above 8%. And inflation is becoming a bit of a boogeyman to blame for a variety of social ills, from the costs of fuel, to heating, to food. Perhaps many are tired of hearing stories about inflation over and over again. Perhaps it's a new reality to get used to. As miserable as inflation can make life, perhaps some think it's time to move on. Doing so would be hasty. Inflation may have a reversal, but its effects can be permanent. And inflation means different things in different parts of the world. In parts of Europe, for example, inflation is an especially dirty word. In countries like Germany, inflation brings back some painful memories. We're coming to the 100th anniversary of Germany's hyperinflation crisis. After Germany's loss in World War I, Berlin was desperate to keep its economy afloat and keep up with foreign reparation payments. Germany, however, didn't have much money to spend. The war effort sucked the economy dry. So, the only choice the government had was to print money. Lots of money. 
This caused a hyperinflation crisis that culminated in 1923. In January of that year, a loaf of bread would have cost about 250 German marks. By November of that same year, a loaf of bread would have cost 200 billion marks. That's a two with 11 zeros after it. Money became so worthless, people were using banknotes to wallpaper their houses or to burn in their stoves instead of wood. An old history professor of mine made the following analogy for Germany's crisis. Imagine you're a young person about to board the train from Berlin to Heidelberg, a prestigious college town, to go to university. Before you board the train, you have enough money to cover tuition, housing, food, everything. But by the time you arrive, you don't have enough money to pay for the train ticket. That was how serious inflation was. Here's what famed British economist John Maynard Keynes said in 1919 regarding hyperinflation. Quote, Lenin is said to have declared that the best way to destroy the capitalist system was to debauch the currency. He was certainly right. There is no subtler, no surer means of overturning the existing basis of society than to debauch the currency. The process engages all the hidden forces of economic law on the side of destruction and does it in a manner which not one man in a million is able to diagnose, end quote. The hyperinflation crisis didn't last too much longer. In November 15th of 1923, Germany's central bank introduced a new currency, the Rentenmark. It also stopped monetizing Berlin's debts. Both these moves halted the crisis and started the process of currency normalization. The rest of the 1920s, as it was for the rest of the Western world, was an economic boom for Germany. Germany's hyperinflation crisis is a major event in most modern history textbooks, not because of how Germany's economic problems were ingeniously solved, rather because historians today see it as a harbinger of ominous times. It wasn't the only one in November of 1923. Only a few days earlier, on November 8th, commenced Adolf Hitler's infamous Beer Hall Putsch, where he tried to take over the Bavarian government. The Beer Hall Putsch was one of Hitler's major stepping stones on his road to power. Hitler's Nazis wouldn't gain power in Germany for another decade in 1933. But when they did, they did so on the back of economic collapse. The Great Depression, starting in 1929, hit Germany especially hard. While the Depression didn't bring hyperinflation per se, the Nazis still surged in popularity with a promise to fundamentally transform German society from the failing system it was to one of strength. This is why the hyperinflation crisis is so noteworthy. The hyperinflation of the early 1920s showed how shaky the German economy was. 
One of the only reasons Germany was able to recover from its economic predicaments was American loans under the Dawes Plan, where America would loan Germany money which it would use to pay reparations to Britain and France. But this American money wouldn't last forever, and when it dried up with the stock market crash of 1929, everything in Germany collapsed. And the German people were ready to listen to a demagogue like Hitler, who promised them liberty from their economic shackles. This makes the inflation hitting Europe today all the more concerning. The 1920s inflation crisis was caused by Germany's massive levels of printing money. When the supply of a currency drastically increases overnight, without anything of tangible value to support it, the price of the currency naturally falls. And today, like in 1920s Germany, the world's major economies are busy spending money they don't have. Since the global coronavirus crisis started in 2020, governments around the world have been spending like mad to prop up their economies. The United States alone spent over $5 trillion in coronavirus lockdown recovery packages, while the U.S. government sits on a debt of over $30 trillion. Meanwhile, in Europe, over the course of 2020 and 2021, Germany spent the equivalent of roughly 10% of its gross domestic product, or GDP, on lockdown recovery. France spent roughly 15% of its GDP in public guarantees in 2020 alone. In Austria, one 2021 financial recovery program alone is bringing Vienna a deficit of over 8% of its GDP. Italy, whose debt-to-GDP ratio was roughly 150% last year, announced a scheme in 2020 to unlock an amount worth almost 50% of its GDP of liquid assets for coronavirus recovery. In Germany's 1920s hyperinflation crisis, America was there to bail Berlin out. This is not the case any longer. America's economy, with its $30 trillion-plus debt, is even shakier today than Europe's is. Spiegel International published an article on September 22nd called Germany on the Brink. It describes the general mood many Germans are having to their economic future. Quote, That the German economy will slide into recession this winter is no longer really a question. And there is growing evidence that it could become particularly severe with a tenfold increase in the exchange electricity price, numerous corporate bankruptcies, and a permanently damaged economy. The losses in prosperity, says economist Michael Fratcher, will be permanent. Germany, according to the forecasts, is in decline. This is uncharted territory for Germany. After nearly two golden decades of rising incomes, steady economic growth, and little unemployment, a tough decade is looming, end quote. In a country 
usually characterized by economic and political prosperity, these are unusual times. Germany is the European Union's wealthiest and most populous country. The Chancellor in Berlin is often considered the unofficial leader of the bloc. If Germany, of all countries, is struggling like this, it means circumstances are serious, and not just in Germany, but in all of the European Union. This, however, all begs a few questions. With no end in sight for inflation as of yet, who will Europe turn to? And what happens when circumstances get worse? What happens when recession turns into depression? Spiegel continues, quote, It's a dangerous situation, and not just from an economic point of view. Thousands have taken to the streets in protest in the cities of Leipzig, Magdeburg, and Forsheim in recent weeks. And it's possible this is only the beginning. Politicians in all camps are warning of the possibility of a hot autumn, some of a winter of rage, referring to possible protests and unrest. Germany's domestic intelligence agency, the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution, which is tasked with monitoring extremism, has set up a working group to investigate if a movement is materializing. The fears are justified. People who feel left behind tend to gravitate toward the political fringes. Injustice, even if only a perceived unfairness, fosters populism and extremism. End quote. Much of Europe is already turning to, as Spiegel puts it, populism and extremism. Italy concluded its parliamentary elections on September 25th, and the Brothers of Italy party, the successor to Benito Mussolini's fascist party, won the most seats. In Sweden's parliamentary elections earlier this month, the far-right Sweden Democrats won the second-largest number of seats. Inflation isn't by any means the only reason people are being drawn to these kinds of parties, but economic mismanagement only helps delegitimize the status quo parties in favor of more radical alternatives. Europe's current economic woes are not on the level of the Great Depression. Yet. But, like the hyperinflation of 1923, they are a good sign that far, far worse times are yet to come. Historically, Germany's final solution was to turn to a strongman, and if historical parallels mean anything, this suggests another is coming. The trumpet has been watching for the rise of a European strongman for decades. We focus on this trend because of Bible prophecy. Passages like Revelation chapters 13 and 17 prophesy of a strong European empire in the spirit of ancient Rome to come on the scene right before the second coming of Christ. Daniel 8 verse 23, meanwhile, talks about this empire being led by a king of fierce countenance, 
and understanding dark sentences, or as a revised standard version puts it, one who understands riddles. Verses 24 and 25 talk about him having mighty power and that he would eventually even destroy many. He would be in the mold of his predecessor ruling Europe, Adolf Hitler. That man hasn't appeared yet, but the circumstances that brought Hitler to power are taking hold of Europe, especially Germany, again. It won't be long before people look for somebody, anybody, anybody who understands the economic riddles plaguing them to deliver them. The Bible prophesies that when this man comes, he's going to rock not only Europe, but the whole world. To learn more, please request a free copy of the Trumpet.com's booklet, Germany and the Holy Roman Empire. This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. Weather disasters have been pounding several countries worldwide. Is the cause for this climate change what so many people are insisting it is? We'll get some answers in this report from Josue Michels. In the middle of June, different parts of the United States were suffering storms, extreme heat, flooding, wildfires, and its most severe drought in a millennium. This comes after winter blizzards that killed hundreds in Texas alone. At the end of 2021, a string of tornadoes tore through six American states. Other regions have suffered deadly once-in-a-century floods. Japan was hit by one of its most severe storms ever. A tornado fire struck Algeria. Earthquakes, floods and fires displaced millions of people and caught the attention of millions more. But in all these disasters, we may overlook an important lesson. We human beings have experienced many such plagues in the past, but their frequency now leaves us with an inescapable question. What is happening to our world? Yet the answer escapes us and divides us. With so many people concerned about weather disasters, leaders around the world have channeled that concern into an agenda for reducing carbon emissions. Mankind, particularly in the last century, has contaminated waters, polluted the air, trashed landscapes and ruined topsoil. No one loves pollution. Stubbing it sounds wonderful. But the question is, will man's agenda reduce pollution? And will reducing pollution and droughts, earthquakes, fires, floods and storms? Many people who themselves are in favor of finding ways to reduce pollution say that the agenda of reducing carbon emissions is unscientific. They say the only scientists that agree have been paid to agree. But if cars and cows aren't causing climate change and environmental disasters, 
What is? Many are created exposing the flaws in the so-called science, but they don't have an answer either. Some religious people say God is using these disasters to punish the wicked. But the religious only claim this until they themselves are hit by a plague. Is there a God? Why is he allowing people of all kinds and all religions to suffer? It seems to be an impossible paradox. Religion appears to offer more questions than answers. The Holy Bible is by far the most printed book in the world. It directly claims that God controls the weather. It also claims that this same God wants to save all human beings. Yet thousands of people who claim to follow God and thousands more who have never heard of him die every year in weather disasters. How can that be? Religion has no answer. Does the Bible? Does God not believe that America is suffering enough? Why not end the drought with rain? Why not stop the raging storms? Few dare to ask these questions, but the Bible answers them all. The Bible claims that God commands the storms and they obey. The first chapters of the book of Job state that God even allows those who serve him to be struck by weather disasters caused by Satan. Nahum 1 verses 3 to 5 read, The Lord has his way in the whirlwind, and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry and dries up all the rivers. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence. So why does God use weather to punish America? In his landmark book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy, the late Herbert W. Armstrong explained that Americans and the British descendants descended from the ancient Israelites. This means that many end-time Bible prophecies apply directly to them. God specifically named in Leviticus 26 the blessings and the curses that these people would suffer if they disbelieved and disobeyed their Creator. God calls on His people to repent, to turn to Him and to keep His law. This would stop the curses. See 2 Chronicles chapter 7 verses 13 to 14. Yes, versus disasters do punish sinners and all are sinners influenced by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Ephesians 2.2, 2, Revelation 12 verse 9. This most certainly includes the ancient Israelites and their descendants in America, Britain and other nations who have turned from God despite having received enormous blessings and personal relations with God. Job, however, was far more righteous and successful than people are today, yet, mainly through suffering from disasters, he came to realize that his righteousness was worthless. And his only hope was true repentance, 
as we can see in Job 38 to chapter 42. God unblessed him greatly. Those things are all long gone, and Job has perished like all men eventually will. But as we will see, in our conclusion, the repentant attitude God led him to changes everything. God wants the same for Americans, British and all peoples, living, dead and unborn. If God's people hear his warning, a curse can turn the nation around and result in wonderful blessings. That is why he punishes for sin. The Bible records repeated examples of God teaching Israel by removing plagues and other threats when the nation repented. But what about the many, many other nations that have had no history with God? What about all those who have actually died in the plague? Scientists have no answer, neither do religious people. They presume that those who have died, especially if they died not believing in God and Jesus Christ, will perish permanently. But as trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Louis explains in his booklet Name an End-Time Prophecy for Germany, there's more to it. And I quote, God wants this world to learn that he controls nature. Many natural disasters are anything but natural. Soon arrogant man will learn this lesson very deeply. End of quote. God's chosen nation Israel has a chance to repent, but so does the entire world. The creator of human beings wants all men to learn that he controls the weather. Accepting this fact would revolutionize our societies. We have plagued ourselves with sin, greed, morality, perversion, contamination, war and more. The weather, which God controls, is getting our attention, but God himself is not. We continue to ignore, disbelieve, disobey, refuse to repent and we perish. Last year Germany experienced record floods that killed more than 150 people. This year, the same area is experiencing record drought. God hopes that the German people will repent and give specific prophecies that show what happens if they don't. As Mr. Fluey explains, Germans today are ancestors from the late Assyrian Empire. The book of Nahum contains a message to this group of people. Part of this message is that he dries up rivers. The Bible reveals that if the German people reject God's call for repentance, they will trust a man who will lead them into a catastrophic war and great atrocities. In Nahum 2 verse 13, God prophesies that he will punish Germany, saying, Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. If Germany refuses to heed this warning today, it will suffer great devastation. Today's weather curses are a warning to Germany and our whole world of the evil that is about to come. God's word cannot be broken, but he gives everyone a chance to repent 
if they choose to heed his warning. All human beings have indulged in sin, and sin is fatal if we do not repent of it in this life or, as we will see, in the resurrection. Sin ultimately causes permanent death. The more we indulge in it, the more severely God must punish us to ultimately save us from it. But why do so many die in weather disasters, while others don't? From the days of Job to the time of Christ to today, religious people have largely believed that those who suffer from disasters that only God can stop must be the greatest sinners. What does the Bible say? It opens the door to answering some of the most inescapable yet seemingly inexplicable questions about human existence. Jesus Christ answered this exact question in a conversation about a current news event, a disaster in which an earthquake or another cause collapsed a building and killed people. Jesus Christ asked, suppose you that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? This is the same question millions have asked after so many have died in disasters. This is the answer to the question Jesus Christ said, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Jesus Christ prophesied that the vast majority of mankind in our time is about to suffer violence. In Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation, he prophesied that global catastrophes, man-made and otherwise, will affect everyone on earth. So this is something that is especially relevant to those of us living in this time of increasing disasters. But he was also revealing the purpose of all human lives, past, present and future. Not all have perished in a seemingly senseless disaster. Criminals and terrorists have escaped death, while entire families have perished. No matter how rich, how smart, how powerful, or even how religious or how seemingly good a person is, all human lives have perished or will perish. Fatal disasters remind us of this. And they point us to the one and only purpose and hope of human life, repenting toward our Creator. Only those who understand the hope of human life, which is only revealed in the Bible, can understand environmental disasters. Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 24 verse 6, See that you be not troubled. So many have already died in earthquakes and weather curses that God has allowed, what hope is there for them? Christian preachers do not have the answer. Many think that the only purpose of those who have perished is merely to warn those who are Christian. Many resign themselves to concluding that God is too great and mysterious for us to understand why he let these people die. Others think that those who perish will go to heaven 
regardless of their beliefs. But what, does, but what does the Bible say? God has given man the ability to choose between Satan's way and his. From the very beginning, human beings have made a choice to decide for themselves what is right and wrong, rather than submitting to what God commands is right and wrong. This, as the late Herbert W. Armstrong wrote, is the cause of human suffering. When the first human being rejected God, he actually cut mankind off from his spirit. God is not battling to convert and save the world. If he was, he would have a track record of terrible failure. He is allowing human beings to experience the results of their choice as a version therapy. We are saturating ourselves in sin and experiencing the consequences. But few understand that our suffering serves an eternal purpose. We are facing reality, learning cause and effect. Ultimately, we will see our need to rely on God and obey Him. We will finally admit that human beings are under Satan's deception, that we do not have the answers and that we have no purpose or hope in this life or beyond without our Creator. The Bible teaches that Satan is the God of this world, that God is not judging the world today or the billions of others who have died until, after he removes Satan, restores his government through the return of Jesus Christ and brings the dead back to physical life in the resurrection. You can read about that in Ezekiel 37 and Revelation 20. But what mankind in general will learn in the future, you can learn today. You can choose repentance today, which opens the door to an even more incredible future. By seeking God today in repentance, you can prepare to help others make the same choice in the future. To start your study request, why natural disasters? And repentance toward God. This is Trumpet Hour with Joel Hilliker. According to James Clear, author of Atomic Habits, your life is essentially the sum of your habits. Are you out of shape? That's because of your habits. Do you suffer from illness? That's a result of your habits. What you repeatedly do each day ultimately forms the person you are. What can you do to change yourself for the better, to be healthier, to get better habits into your life. To talk about this, we have via Skype from his office in British Columbia, holistic nutritionist and personal trainer, Jorg Mardian. Hello there. Hi there. There's a lot to this. You live your life according to your habits. I'm sure as a nutritionist and a personal trainer, you have a strong understanding of the power of habit. How much would you say we operate according to habit? Well, that's actually a surprising fact um, statistics show that at, at a minimum 
um, we have about 40% of our daily actions that occur from habit. And some other sources I was reading said it could go up to 60 to 70, maybe even beyond. So depending how disciplined or undisciplined we are. You know, um, if we if we look at bad habits, so like harmful diet or inactivity or uncontrolled use of medicines, those are all habits. And we may not think about them, but not thinking about them doesn't make them you know, doesn't mean they're not habits. They've become routine and they cause a great deal of harm over time because we're not consciously changing our behavior. Mm-hmm. And and that's a, one of the main reasons why we have so much disease today. People just do stuff unconsciously. They just do it, some willingly, but most of people just kind of do things as a routine. And while a lot of people do want to change, it can feel near impossible to create those healthy habits because many people try. I mean, that's why I'm in business to help people create those habits. Yeah. And it's almost universal. You know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I don't know how to start or even to, if I do start, uh, I don't know how to keep it going. You know, it's much, much easier to do what's comfortable, to eat what's unhealthy, and to take medicine to mask the effects of that lifestyle then. You know, um, and then I teach people to avoid this outcome and, and to focus on conscious, long-lasting habits based on what's beneficial to that person. So we have to think about what is it about the habit that I want from it? Is it beneficial for me? You know, and it turns out there are some very helpful ways that make it easier to stick to new habits. And that's the key. You can start a habit, as many people do at the beginning of the year, but you have to stick to them. So you want to improve your health, you want to improve your fitness, and you want to improve your life in general. And uh, so uh, there are clear ways to do so. So what what are some some positive habits that we can build? I, I don't know if you you have certain habits that you want to build or ways to make sure that the habit that you're trying to build are are going to stick, uh, or maybe a bit of both. Well, absolutely. Um, what I've done is I've just created a a set of seven habits. There's more, but the most important to me to my clients is is uh, to create a set of habits. Um, a routine for them, a system that they can dig into. And if they understand that system and if they implement it, then they have success. Uh, the only time we have failure is failure is if they don't implement the system. You know, so my first one that I always tell people is you have to have a vision. You know, can you reach a lifestyle goal without a vision? Sure, but it's it's inefficient. It's it's frustrating. It's time wasting. Because the real question is, why would you want to do it without seeing the end result? You know, uh, Steve Jobs once said, if you're working on something that excites you, that you really care about, you don't have to be pushed because the vision pulls you. And I love that quote. Um, the vision is the foundation where, of where everything exists or, or begins. You know, it makes your goals clear it prioritizes what you do your decisions and activities and it brings about the motivation to actually change you 
you know, most people can't connect their mind to the end of their journey. They just have this big goal, but they don't see ahead. So they fill their time with what's what's instant pleasures that lack purpose and direction. You know, they, they, they lack a purpose. So I always say don't empower people to to or circumstances to shape you by default. You know, have a vision, visualize your completed journey. Mm-hmm. Um, the the second goal that I give people is to set a mission statement, and that's critical. Um, you don't want to go through life on autopilot because your health suffers. Most people do that. You know, highly motivated individuals. If you study Navy SEALs, for example, they always set themselves a personal mission statement, and that guides them through any obstacles that they they encounter. Um, our life actually has a lot of obstacles, and and so we need a mission statement for focus and direction. So my mission statement to a client might be, I might say, okay, here's your mission statement. I will look after my long-term health by regularly exercising, by eating well, by limiting the intake of anything that may be harmful to my body. By doing that, I'm going to lose about 20 pounds and feel better in six months. Now, what did I do here? I made that statement crystal clear Mm -hmm. i use strong assertive language i made it measurable realistic and attainable you know it's not going to make the decisions easier but it's going to help propel in the right direction towards the long-term outcome yeah that seems like that uh that could be it would take quite a bit of thought to crystallize that vision that might be more hazy into something that is very, very specific, very manageable, um, and something that can guide you day to day. That's right. You have to sit down, write it out, and then make it something that you believe can happen, you know, but it has to be there or, or else you don't have that, that focus. And that brings me to number three, you know, stay focused, you know, because uh, what is the statement? It's been 80% of results come from 20% of action. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great statement because most highly effective, uh, successful people in, in uh, history have been focused specialists. So uh, Einstein was focused on physics. Um, Elon Musk was largely focused on technology became an expert in it. Uh, Shakespeare was focused on writing. They became great on what they focused on. So focus is an important factor in determining whether you'll achieve a goal or stick to creating a habit. Here's the problem though. Life is going to throw a lot of distractions at us. And so focus is, is disrupted quite easily today. And especially today with all this technology that we encounter and you know, this, these bits and bytes of information that take our attention away from what we're supposed to do. Um, there's another quote by John D. Rockefeller, and he said, um, many people fail to achieve big things because they lack concentration or the art of concentrating the mind on the thing that has to be done at the proper time and to the exclusion of everything else. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to look at focus. And that means the person who's highly focused does few activities. 
And so he has a lot of time focused for each activity at one time. An unfocused person has the same amount of time, but he's just scattered and he, he starts doing too many things at the same time. So he's not focused. So I would say focus on getting the proper amount of exercise and eating right. If that's your goal, focus on that goal and, and then you're going to meet success. Yeah, that is uh, that is the challenge, isn't it? When you've got uh, a lot of things that are demanding your time and tension, and tension and pulling you in a lot of different directions to f- carve out that that focused time to uh, to be able to devote to that. Yeah, that's correct. Um, it, it it is a challenge. Life is a challenge. You know, uh, another big goal is is. Uh, is having too big a goal. You know, people come and say, I want to lose 60 pounds. Okay, great. How are you going to do that? (laughs) That's a big goal. I mean, it's great to dream big, but not so big that your goal is unattainable. Um, Getting back to that book by James Clear, Atomic Habits, he, he introduces a principle in there called the aggregation of marginal gains. I just love that. (laughs) So instead of focusing on your 60 pounds and getting frustrated because you don't meet it fast enough, you know, focus on small sustainable habits. Mm-hmm. So I tell clients to target on milestones that are smaller goals on the way to meeting your mission statement, your overall mission statement. But you want to target 30 days at a time. So, ex- for example, when you're trying to get into shape, introduce small changes of eating, you know, maybe eat somewhat less daily. And exercise more regularly. Those are small changes. Everybody can do that. I mean, my goal isn't, you know, I I, I want to lift weights until I'm I'm super strong and I can lift the truck. Well, that's <laughs> focus on small gains. You know, I want to lift weights so I can get healthy, and I'm going to do it day by day. And uh, you know, I'm just going to write down how much I can do each day and what my improvements are. Well, you're not going to get frustrated with that. Mm-hmm. If your goal is weight loss, aim for reasonable six to eight pounds a month. You're not going to get frustrated with that. And if you if you don't meet that exact goal, just next month is another month. They're just meaningful steps that are important for motivation to keep motivated on the way to your larger goal. Mm-hmm. Um, the another step is become uncomfortable, and and that's a crazy concept for some people being uncomfortable because they have an aversion to discomfort. Um, so. We have this uncertainty with change, and we love the status quo. But, you know, I tell my clients, if you don't have room to fail, you don't have room for growth. You know, you're going to have to make discomfort the game plan because it's going to compel you to push your boundaries. And so exercise is such a scenario because you're going to get uncomfortable as your muscles ache during the strengthening process. That's a fact, you know. There's a lot of short-term pain for long-term growth, suffering for what your goal is. And by suffering, I mean it's just going to be a little uncomfortable. Moderate muscle aches, that's fine. It's a signal your body's getting into shape. Punching past tiredness, okay. That's just a way to reappraise discomfort. You know, not as something that you want to avoid, but as a sign of achievement. Mm-hmm. That's it. And those, those, again, become motivating cues. Yeah. Yeah. Um, time is another issue, be, being time oriented. You know, um, we all start with 24 hours, but effective time management is, is deeper than just a list of tasks. You know, it, you want to use time to transform how, you, 
how you spend your day and how you develop self-control so that you can use that time to maintain good health. You know, um, for example, daily workouts and good nutrition might not seem urgent today. Like you, if you don't use your time, that doesn't seem urgent. But tomorrow, you're going to have consequences. Start today. You know, when you assert yourself control over every day, you find that your level of productivity towards our goal increases. You're looking forward to that goal. In that sense, time management, it doesn't mean that you're going to get things done in a hurry, but it reduces wasted time again and energy so that you re reach your goals a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. So, and the last one that I have, I know you're going to be uh, big on this one <laughs> because um, build willpower. I know you have a lot of tasks at hand that you do every day. Willpower is really our cognitive strength, the ability to flex our mental muscle. And that's a that's a word today that's not very much loved, willpower. You know, some experts say it's a finite resource. And, and, and you know, if, if we run dry, we make bad decisions. There's, there is some truth to that, but you can also improve your self-control by doing, by ex by doing exercises or eating better, you know. Any act of regular self-control will gradually increase your self-control muscle and make you stronger. If you don't use your self-control, it's not going to get better. Mm -hmm. um, there are several habits that will broaden that comfort zone. So if, you, if you're going to do something like, say, a lifestyle change, get down to the business at hand. Do it. If it's unpleasant to you, do what's hard or unpleasant first and stick to it until it's done. You know, that that's the key. Yeah, um, yeah I'm reminded of uh, an article that you wrote a few years back. Uh, you can't change without it. Uh, 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 talking about the, the importance of self-discipline. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Self-discipline is a big part of it. And, and like I said, it's a dirty word today. But you can develop willpower just like any other muscle. You don't use it, it atrophies. So, you know, I'll just end by saying you're, you're never going to be out of shape or too overweight or too old to make healthy changes. Don't be discouraged. Just recognize that behavior adjustment is a challenge. And just look for habit changes that support those lifestyle tweaks. Do it consistently and often, and then it becomes a permanent habit. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I think the uh, the value of consistency really is something that it's easy to to underestimate. If you're just doing the same uh, the same thing, you're drilling it and you're sticking with it and you don't give up, uh, you're going to be able to power through a lot of things that, uh, that would fall by the wayside otherwise. Uh, giving up is the end of the uh, building of that, that good habit. So you gave us some really good uh, ideas here, uh, seven keys to change our, our lifestyle to become healthier. We thank you very much for that. We've been talking with personal trainer and holistic nutritionist Jörg Mardian about building healthy habits. He's working on an article that you can watch for at thetrumpet.com. I'll also link to uh, that older article that he wrote, You Can't Change Without It. Thanks so much for your time, Jorg. It's been my pleasure.
It's time for today's Last Word. Have you had a discouraging setback recently? You work really hard on that presentation at work and the plan is rejected. That home improvement project that seemed simple turns out to be tricky, time-consuming, and a lot more expensive than you thought. You strive to meet a challenging goal and you fall short of attaining it. Well, what do you do when you smack face first into failure? Do you get negative and bitter? Do you allow discouragement to overwhelm you? Do you give up? A whole lot of people do. Letdowns happen to us all, and how we respond is what's really important. I recently encountered this old poem that speaks to the need to keep life's struggles, obstacles, and failures in perspective. "'Tis a lesson you should heed. Try, try again. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Then your courage should appear, for if you will persevere, you will conquer. Never fear. Try, try again." Once or twice, though you should fail, try, try again. If you would at last prevail, try, try again. If we strive, tis no disgrace, though we do not win the race. What should you do in that case? Try, try again. If you find your task is hard, try, try again. Time will bring you your reward. Try, try again. All that other folks can do, why with patience should not you? Only keep this rule in view. Try, try again. Why try again when it's so much easier to sigh again or cry again and just give up? The reason is that failure is part of learning. Nobody is an instant expert. If you're pushing yourself, if you're doing hard things and learning and growing, you're going to fail. If something is really worth doing, it's going to take time and effort and failure to learn it. If you only do what comes easy to you and what you're already good at, you're going to be stuck in mediocrity. If when you fail, you give up, you'll never grow. That was true when you were learning to talk. It's also true as you're learning to deliver a speech. Wendell Phillips said, What is defeat? Nothing but education. Nothing but the first steps to something better. There's something magnificent about watching a baby first learning to walk. This tiny human is amusingly awkward, on the edge of disaster at all times, repeatedly falling on his diaper-padded tushy, and yet he's happy wide-eyed, exhilarated, acting like these unsteady steps are spiking his adrenaline like the final strides up the peak of Everest. Now imagine the baby who fails time and time again, trying to walk, and finally gives up in exasperation. And now he's 45 years old, still crawling on his hands and knees. Yeah, I tried walking. It's not my thing. I've got no talent. That would obviously be pretty awkward. Herbert W. Armstrong wrote a booklet called The Seven Laws of Success. We'd be happy to send you a free copy. It's a great little booklet. The sixth of these seven laws is perseverance. This booklet says nine in ten, at least once or twice in a lifetime, 
come to the place where they appear to be totally defeated. All is lost, apparently, that is. They give up and quit. When just a little more determined hanging on, just a little more faith and perseverance, just a little more stick to would have turned apparent certain failure into glorious success. Learning to gracefully handle disappointment and to bounce back from failure, that's going to make you a lot more successful at a lot more things in your life. The person who remains positive, learns from his mistakes, applies the lessons of a failure, and charges forward for another attempt, that's the person who ultimately nails it. Proverbs 24, verse 16 is a wonderful proverb to remember. It says, For a just man falls seven times and rises up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. Everybody falls, but when the wicked fall, they don't get back up. When the righteous fall, they refuse to give up. They rise to their feet and keep moving forward. It says they fall seven times and rises up again. Seven times is an expression that means over and over, again and again. Psalm 145 and verse 14 gives another scriptural promise to keep in mind. It says the eternal upholds all that fall and raises up all that be bowed down. When you fall, God will revive you. When you're discouraged, he will pick you up and encourage you, just like a parent who is excitedly helping his toddler learn how to walk. So, you failed. Don't be discouraged by the fact that you're human like the rest of us. Think it through. Get counsel. Learn what you can from the mistake. Rise up. Lift your chin and move forward. The harder you work for something, the sweeter it will be when you achieve it. Joel Hilliker, and that will do it for today's Trumpet Hour. You can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks to our contributors, Mihailo Zekic, Josue Michels, and Jorg Mardian. Thanks to Nick Irwin and Dwight Falk for engineering and production. I'll leave you with this thought from Aristotle. We are what we repeatedly do. Excellence, then, is not an act, but a habit. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time... Keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.